Hello, everybody. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to another edition of The Shrink and the Pundit, which is a podcast that I've been doing with my good friend, Dr. Keith Witt, for the last several years, where we talk about issues in psychotherapy and self-development. And uh, of course, Dr. Keith is one of the leading integral psychotherapists in the world, having written a number of books on the topic, including his latest, Shadow Light, Illuminations at the Edge of Darkness. Keith has been in private practice for over 40 years, has worked with many tens of thousands of clients, couples, and so forth, and is just a a transmitter of wisdom around this mystery of human life and growth. In today's episode, it's actually two episodes, this is part one, we're going to focus on trauma, which is something that Keith has become more and more interested in, especially as it becomes more and more clear that trauma is deeply toxic for people, unprocessed trauma, and that it is quite common, whether it be what Keith refers to as big T trauma, the big acts of violence or accident or abuse that people fall prey to, or the little T traumas of rejection and the everyday slings and arrows that can, you know, gain purchase over your happiness. And, um, and that are actually solvable when treated um, often in very beautiful, folky ways. In fact, I love that Keith emphasizes the idea of talk to other people about your traumas, to loved ones, to people that you trust. doesn't have to be a therapist, but a therapist works. So anyway, a therapist is going to work today because uh, we're putting Keith through his paces on this. And I think I said it's in two parts. It is. The part one is a recording of a live event that Keith and I did a couple months ago at the Integral Center in Boulder. And in the talk, Keith focuses more on small T trauma. And then the part two is on big T trauma, and it's a conversation that we had a week or so ago. And um, so this fills out a what I think is really an important message and a, a real practical way of turning towards our pain, which is you know one of the markers of integral consciousness. We no longer try to deny our pain or pray it away or explain it away, or drink it away, we turn towards it and welcome it in, knowing that it has um, great gifts for us. So this is part one, and on behalf of Dr. Keith Witt, I thank you for listening. Welcome to this live episode of The Shrink and the Pundit, which... uh, Keith and I have been doing for quite some time, and it's been a popular podcast on both of our sites. And so to have Keith here in Colorado, he's been here for a few days, and we went down and visited Ken Wilbur yesterday, right? Right. It was so much fun. Yeah. So say hey, Keith. Say hey, Keith. Yeah. Hey, everybody. (laughs) 
It's great to be here. Nice to see everybody. This is my home away from home, Boulder. Uh, integral Mecca for me. Yeah, uh, cool. And what we're going to talk about tonight is a topic that is you know, just getting more and more attention. It's almost like we're evolving into seeing it more deeply. And that is the issue of trauma. You know, we, there's probably people in this room, and we'll have a chance to hear from you as well and take some questions. Uh, but people are working on all sorts of traumas, from abuse, child abuse, sexual abuse, uh, violence, uh, illness, accident, a you know, really painful divorce or <clears throat> end of a career, that sort of thing. And I have to say, for me, I actually have this life so far, I mean, knock on wood, where I haven't really experienced much of any of that. And, and yet, I can think of, you know, several very significant incidents in my life of sort of rejection or failure that are wounding, you know, and I still have the scars of them, and they're still sort of juicy. And, and so uh, what I want to do first, Keith, is um, ask you to tell us a little bit about how you see trauma and this sort of range mm -hmm. of traumatic experiences and how you sort of define it. Uh, yes. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is because um, how we understand ourselves and how we understand development is heavily influenced by cultural standards. And psychotherapy has been psychopathology-oriented the last 130 years. And so when people think about trauma, they think about bad stuff. You know, trauma is bad. We do not want trauma. And actually, that's true. We want as few traumas as possible. On the other hand, trauma is inevitable in all of our lives, and it's necessary for healthy development. Um, and the research that's been done on the big, big traumas is actually applicable to Steve, is actually applicable to um, the small traumas. And uh, one of the people that turned me on to this uh, most was Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR, which is Eye Movement Desensitization Reprogramming. And she has an adaptive information processing model for development. That's a good model. Um, it's, it's a good model in the same way that Alan Shore's model about affect regulation is a good model. It's a model that can be applied to a lot of things. And she distinguishes between big T traumas and little t traumas. Okay. So big T trauma is an assault. Uh, big T trauma is a car wreck that leaves us shaken. Um, big T traumas are traumas that have lingering effects, PTSD, post-traumatic stress effects. Big T traumas are um, the illness or, the, or the, um, the loss, the catastrophic loss that most of us will experience at some point in our life. Um, and these are uh, dangerous. They're toxic. Uh, we don't want to have them. Um, it causes a lot of problems. Now, uh, the fact is, they happen. Uh, and when they happen to us, just like everything else that happens to us, they become us. They become ours. We're responsible for 100% of everything we experience and do. It doesn't matter how unfair it is. It doesn't matter that it's unfair I was assaulted. It doesn't matter that it was unfair that the drunk driver you know, killed my son. 
And I, by the way, my son wasn't killed by a drunk driver, though I've had to work with people that have had loved ones killed by drunk drivers. Once I experienced that, it's mine. And it's my job to uh, deal with it. Um, it's my job uh, to uh, find a way through it. And something that's inspiring to me about people is if you ask a dozen people, what's an experience that was one of the most transformative experiences where you found yourself as yourself, where something caused you to kick on over to the other side? Eight of them will tell you about something horrible that happened and how they dealt with it. Um, Rudy Giuliani, you know, when somebody asked him, so has anything ever really just changed you? They thought they'd need to say 9-11, because that's what he always says when people ask him questions. What did you have for dinner? 9-11. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said prostate cancer. Having to deal with prostate cancer, having to deal with that trauma, changed me. It made me a kinder man, made me more empathic, apparently, to the people around him. So those are the big T traumas. Um, and they've been heavily studied, and we'll talk about them tonight some. But then there's little t traumas. Little t traumas are different. They're experiences that we have that we haven't metabolized to a sense of satisfaction or a sense of growth or even to neutrality. They're experiences that we have that leave some kind of toxic residue in our personality or in our habits. These are necessary for development. They're necessary to develop resilience. Just like our, our, nervous, our immunological system um, needs to have, for instance, to get sick once in a while for us to have immune function. As we grow, we need to be challenged by distressing events. And meeting those distressing events, losing, winning, transcending over a period of time helps shape us. They develop, it develops resilience. Um, you see this in military training. A normal person will break down uh, when their heart rate goes about 130 in stress. You get stressed out, your heart rate goes up. So if you do, say, ranger training or Navy SEAL training, they learn how to function and how to do what they're supposed to do when their heart rates are 160 in stress. Um, how do they do that? They are given progressive series of traumatic events, knocked down initially, and then gradually encouraged and structured carefully to be able to transcend them into a sense of strength and resolution. And this is how they develop their superpowers. And so this happens to all of us. So there's the big T traumas, and there's the little t traumas. They're inevitable. They're necessary for development. Um, they happen to all of us. And it's not whether they happen to us that matters. It's our relationship with them. It's how we meet them. And we can get better and better and better at this. It's just like courage. You know, courage is an attribute that gets stronger with use. It's a relationship with fear. So our relationship with trauma helps shape us as people. Right? Yeah. So, life is traumatizing, so we can't get out of it. Yeah, especially modern life. Yeah. Well, especially pre-modern life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Point know. taken. Yeah. I'd rather be now well, than any other time. Well, we talked about that. It's actually, you know, one of the things we do at Integral is we look at the stages of development. Okay. We believe in evolution in terms of consciousness and culture. And that trauma is dealt with in different ways at different stages. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the reasons that trauma is, like PTSD is a thing, you know, and a big thing, and people get it, and all of the abuse and so forth that in previous stages is processed differently. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and part of why we're uh, sensitizing ourselves to it is because that's what the leading edge of consciousness is doing, is getting sensitive. And so um, talk a little bit about that, if you would. How do you sort of place trauma on the stages of development, and particularly what's going on at the stages that most of us here are at, which is you know some version of orange, green, and integral. Okay, so, so first of all, let's talk a little bit about what it means to um, successfully meet a traumatic event and to not successfully meet a traumatic event. There's a guy named Pierre Genet in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who studied um, men who came back from the wars. And they had had horrible experiences. And some of them did okay. Some of them kind of kept themselves, and some of them didn't. And he said that the difference was that the people that kept themselves were able, either in an imaginal level or a real level, to carry through an event to a perceived sense of triumph. And when he was working with these people, he would talk to them about it. He'd have them go back into it in fantasy, which was very avant-garde, 1920, 1930, until they had that subjective sense of, making, of, of triumph on the other side. And he found that their symptoms went down under those circumstances. So that's how it is with big T and little t traumas. We're knocked back. And then what do we do with that being knocked back? Well, we, we, we go into ourselves and it has an effect. It has an effect on our sense of self. It has an effect on how we deal with, for instance, you know, say Mrs. Day, my fourth grade teacher, gave me a lot of shit because I talked up too much in class. <laughs> just, just say that happened. Okay? <laughs> Let's just imagine, you know, big Mrs. Day giving me shit. I remember one time she had some big stick, you know, I was, I was said, well, what about this? You know, I was, I was going two or three steps ahead and she hated that. You know, the teachers who loved that loved me. Teacher, she went like this and I, she, you know, she was threatening me with a stick. I was a fourth grader. And so, you know, big angry women after that kind of got my back up. You know, I would, get, I would get too hostile in response to them until my nervous system progressed to a point where I could have insight. I had to be formal operational wisdom therapy. I began to go, why am I getting so mad? And you're getting, well, when have you had a problem with big angry? Well, you know, it reminds me of, of Mrs. Day in fourth grade. Now, that insight was really useful for me because it got me getting suspicious of inappropriate levels of arousal in me. And getting suspicious of inappropriate levels of arousal and getting interested in inappropriate levels of arousal is a really good practice. You know, you monitor your arousal levels, all right? And, and then what if, it, what, if there's, what if a situation deserves a one and I have a six? So what people usually do, you know, say you go, ah, oh, Keith, you know, I didn't like your book very much. Oh, that reminds me. Shadow Light, <laughs> available on Amazon. My book just came out. I'll give a, a longer pub labor, but it just seemed like a perfect moment. <laughs> so instead of feeling like a little bit of distress on that, like on a one, I feel like an eight of distress. So the human tendency is to go, oh, you really insulted me. It's to create a belief system that makes my reaction proportionate. And this is how trauma fucks us up. Because you said, I didn't like your book that much. And I come back like, how dare you talk to me that way? And you go, God, Keith, you're such an asshole. I go, how dare you? And all of a sudden, 
our social cohesion has gone to hell. And not only that, within the context of that social environment, now we've got to resolve it. And we're not resolving it collaboratively. Um, and this is where evolution comes in. And I want to talk about evolution a little bit. I, I'm on your question, but, but <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, if, if I don't catch that eight and adjust it down, then what I've done is I've taken us to a more primitive level of processing. And on that more primitive level of processing, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. Um, and the reason for this is because we evolved in tribes. And tribes maxed out about 150, the Dunbar number after Robin Dunbar. And in those tribes, we had to have social frameworks. And those social frameworks were maintained primarily by social engagement, like we're doing. Every once in a while, somebody would get pissed off. Somebody would get, want something somebody else had, and there would be a conflict. How are those conflicts resolved? Um, sometimes there was a framework. Somebody else would resolve it. If it's two people resolving it, one person would get angry, another person would get angry, they begin to accelerate, like chimpanzees do. At some point, just like other mammals, one person would begin to feel the danger, and they would collapse first and kind of go into the submissive role, and the other person would go into the dominant role. If this is reinforced over time, the dominant person begins to enjoy bullying people. A submissive person begins to feel like a worthless piece of shit because I'm always getting dominated. Okay? Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, this is great for the tribe because we don't lose two members or one member. Um, and it creates social order, which is necessary. And if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, evolution biases survival first. You know, got to survive to reproduce. Biases comfort second. You know, got, don't want to be too cold or too hot. Bias is belonging third, because if we're not a member of the group, we're going to die. Bias is self-esteem fourth. And bias is self-transcendent fifth. We have drives and needs for all five of them. But we have to have a culture where we're OK with survival, and we're OK with um, comfort, and we're OK um, um, with um, self-esteem. When we're OK, that creates a platform where now we can actually, uh, belonging, that creates a platform where we can actually go to um, self-esteem needs. We can go to self-transcendent needs, which is why there's so many seekers in the cultures today in the, in, the, in the world. Why are there so many seekers? Because we can afford to be seekers, because our survival needs um, are being met, our comfort needs are being met, our belonging needs are being met, particularly in pluralistic societies where we can have all kinds of different opinions and not get burned at the stake and stuff, like has happened in previous cultures. And if we want to track the value memes reaction to trauma, we can look to, at, from history, and we can also look developmentally, de developmentally with children. And you know, I like, looking at, I like looking at Robert Kagan's stages. So let's start with impulsive. So an impulsive person dealing with, with trauma is all nervous system. OK, so 18-month-old. 18-month-old is about to throw the rock through the window. You know, mommy says, don't. Okay, and and she's, she likes that window. And so she has a little bit of extra juice to the donut. And he gets disapproved of heavily, and it shocks him. He feels the stress. He drops the rock, goes into a shame reaction, um, begins to cry, freezes. This is evolution's way of, teach, of mammals being able to control their young at a distance when they hit the age of toddlers. His nervous system is programming the trauma of being disapproved of, stopping, I'm bad. Now, if he's a securely attached kid, mommy loves him again, and he goes, okay, and there's a little social learning done. But also, 
There's a little bit of, of being traumatized by that voice, by that extra juice, because she liked that window. You know, maybe I'm bad. Okay. Um, well, impulsively then, he doesn't, he, at, at that particular point, his nervous system now is a little bit more cautious about mom, a little bit more cautious about these kinds of activities. So maybe when he goes and plays baseball and they say, I want you to take the ball and throw it, you know, he's a little inhibited about throwing the ball. Why? His nervous system has learned throwing things isn't good. Um, if we go from impulsive to um, um, uh, conformist, uh, I feel... So this would be red to amber, red, red to, to amber. blue. Yeah, so let's go red to amber. I feel secure, um, I feel insecure, and I feel traumatized if I'm, if I'm being threatened with exclusion. So if, if there's something in me that doesn't, that doesn't fit with the collective, and let's face it, we're humans. There's always something in me that doesn't fit with the collective. To me, that's a secret shame. And if somebody discovers that, I'm traumatized. Okay? We, we see this so much with sex. That's almost too easy a target uh, about how people being, uh, being traumatized. Uh, children engaging in age-appropriate sex play being shamed and feeling traumatized by it, that translating into them being ashamed of appropriate sexuality later on. Um, belonging. Um, and so trauma is processed through, am I doing the things, am I believing the things, and I'm feeling the things that may be consistent with the group. And if I'm not, um, I can have a small T trauma or even a large T trauma under those circumstances. And this is devastating. Um, if you talk to children about any, one guy I worked with had one year at a New York elementary school where um, he was bullied. So his entire educational arc after that year was compromised. He developed a resistance to putting any kind of conscious energy into success, even though he had an IQ of about 135, 140. He was a brilliant guy. So, you know, failure, 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 failure. And, and you know, it's totally cynical, didn't believe in psychotherapy, and so they sent him to me, of course. <laughs> He's uh, in a robotics program in college right now, doing quite well, uh, but it was a long road for him. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't just that they were mean to him. Um, um, he did not, he was being excluded by what, his, what felt like you know, his group, and you know, he felt, okay, I'm in an iconic class, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow my own, uh, you know, fuck everybody, I'm gonna follow my own uh, drummer. And, and he couldn't help it. He was, he was caught up in it, and that's the association, which we'll talk about later. But if we keep progressing, we go to self-authorizing, uh, self-authoring. Um, orange. Yeah, we go to orange. We're modernists. Now, this is interesting. We're more individualistic. We, we have goals, and then we can invest energy in progressing towards those goals. This is one of the individualistic value memes. But success and failure is a big deal. Um, and so I might experience failure as a small-t trauma. Um, uh, most of you know about Carol Dweck's work with growth mindsets and fixed mindsets. A fixed mindset is someone that can't stand to fail, doesn't risk it, needs to do well, um, can't participate particularly in the growth curve because they have to be the best at anything they do anytime anything comes up. I always smile when I talk about this these days because, you know, this has been in the news quite a lot. Somebody who has to be the best all the time. Um, fixed mindset. These people don't want to work on stuff uh, and generally peak around 12 years old unless they're narcissistically indulged. If you're a growth mindset, effort and progress is interesting to you, and you can tolerate failure even though you don't like it. Um, 
If you don't have that capacity um, to um, tolerate that kind of distress, the trauma of failure can stop you from uh, uh, setting goals. It can stop you from creating the kind of goals that you want. And failure ha has an amplified effect. And if you can't take your, your formal operational skills that, that appear at this value mean, self-reflect and resolve whatever the issues are that are amplifying that distress, it fixates you. Um, it locks you down. Um, and this is true of values. Uh, we develop our first values with, with immature minds, immature brains. And so they're black and white values, they're primitive, they're magical. They need to keep getting edited as we develop. Um, but if we get locked down, if we dissociate, if we get blocked, um, I can't stand failure and I can't look at myself can't stand in failure, it freezes the whole system and we don't keep developing. It's very much like a law, you know, on a macro level. You pass a law, most laws are imperfect, and so they get tweaked as the years pass. But what if Congress can't tweak anymore? What if it gets uh, locked down? What if it gets frozen in gridlock? What happens then is the system starts to break down because that's what governing is. It's continuing to tweak things. But if you get rigid, if you get fixated, if you get stuck, you can't. You have to unstick it. So self-authoring mind will break down if there's a traumatic reaction that causes a fixation or an obsession. Now we get to self-transforming mind, you know, all of our favorite minds. Um, self-transforming mind is we maintain the processes that feel right to us in service of our values, which are emergent values. And now we're so going this would to, be green. It's going into green, exit, um, and exit green into teal eventually. Um, and under these, as we, as we maintain these processes, then our job isn't really to conceptualize the goal and to make it happen, to manifest it. It's to be interested in accepting of what shows up. But if something that shows up that re-stimulates some aspect of me that I don't want to look at, that I've dissociated it from. You know, say I'm an ambitious person and um, it shows up as I'm maintaining my processes that I don't want to particularly accomplish something. I don't want to be ambitious. And I, I get conflicted and confused by that um, and distressed by that. Um, if I can't examine that experience and, and take it down to um, whatever the belief systems are and the memories and so on that um, uh, uh, are involved in that aspect of myself, once again, there's a block. And one of the reasons that I wrote the shadow book is that most of these blocks happen out of awareness in our, in our adaptive unconscious, in our, in our shadow. And part of being a human being is that relationship with that shadow stuff coming up. There's positive constructive shadow and there's destructive shadow. And our brains are wired to not want to look particularly at the destructive sh shadow. We don't like to see it. We dissociate away from it. In that, we're unlike any other mammals, because most mammals dissociate to stay in the present moment, not humans. With pathological dissociation, we dissociate to stay out of the present moment. And that's why most trauma treatment takes people right into the present moment and helps them stay there. Cool. So, yeah. I think no, so. Well, I think well, that is so cool. Well, you know, I mean, so I look at myself and people I know, and I see that there's trauma at this very low, archaic level of basic safety. Somebody's been violated, violence, whatever. Okay. There's also the trauma, there's sort of that level of trauma where uh, it's basic security, you mm -hmm. know, and, 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 um, and then the, the trauma of being bad, mm -hmm. and then the trauma of being, of not fitting in, 
We all have those. The trauma of being a failure or not achieving my potential. Mm-hmm. You know. And then the trauma of green is the trauma of what? It, it's the trauma of not being who I'm supposed to be. Yes, that's it's that one. It's the trauma of, you know, when I was a hippie, uh, it was, I always had a little bit of difficulty because I was also a martial artist, okay? So peace, love is all very well, but, you know, I like practicing martial arts. I like going out with the other black belts and kicking ass with each other, you know, in a very respectful way and everything. And so... Um, uh, I realized that, um, uh, at least in my universe, um, that there were certain aspects of, of that, green, it was a green universe, that didn't fit for Keith. You know, I just was an anomaly in that. Um, now, I, I didn't feel particularly ashamed of it. Um, though I did feel ashamed, I got jealous if my girlfriend went out and had sex with other guys. I was really ashamed of that. Because, you know... I was a pluralistic person. We're all loving each other. We should all love each other and, and, you, know, and, and you know, free love and all this stuff. And so I felt like a complete failure that my girlfriend's not another guy or whatever. And you know, I feel so bad. You know, I feel like such a failed hippie you know, under those circumstances. <laughs> I was traumatized by that. And I thought that the answer was I needed to learn how to tolerate that. And, you know, I wish, I could, I wish Keith as a... As a 21-year-old, could have met Keith as a 66-year-old, and I would told 21-year-old Keith, you know, the drives have existence. Instincts have existence. You are, have a primary attachment with your girlfriend. If anybody wants to go have sex with your girlfriend, she wants to have sex with somebody else, your nervous system is going to go into mate protection, and you're going to get outraged, you're going to get all pissed off at everybody, and you're going to get really unhappy, and that's just what's going to fucking happen. I don't care how green you are, or how hippie you are, or how anything anybody else is. That's going to happen. So either you put up with that crap or you change something. You know, and then that would, that would be a little integral message to 21-year-old kids, 22-year-old kids. You know, a lot of dissatisfaction of being a therapist is telling a lot of people stuff that I wish people would have told me at those developmental fulcrums. Um, and that's part of the beauty of integral, of course. Beauty of integral is, okay, you know, the, if we're talking about, about almost all healing, but especially trauma healing, what's the organizing principle? The organizing principle is that love heals and that compassionate understanding is love in action. You look at all the trauma treatments. You look at EMDR. You look at the reconsolidation stuff, which we'll do a little bit of it. You look at uh, Pat Ogden, local uh, luminary from Naropa, sensory motor uh, treatment. Um, you look at the physical stuff, the, the Far East, they used to deal with trauma by teaching people martial arts, by teaching people uh, uh, Tai Chi, teaching people all these things that kept them in the present moment in rhythmic movement. Uh, if you're in the present moment and you're in rhythmic movement and a trauma intrudes, you are reprocessing that trauma. They didn't know that, but that's what they did. That's what a lot of us do. That's what I instinctively did when I was 15 and I was crazy. I discovered well, stuff and, like that. And can't we also sort of locate that in development uh, where we were talking about at the lower levels of development, uh, when we're traumatized, our way of dealing with it is hitting back. That's right. Uh, or it's even a more slow-boiled revenge. Oh, yeah. Attribution uh, theory. You, know, you, you, you get back at them. Yeah. You know, and we all have that still, too. In, in, in 1893... Uh, Sigmund Freud and Joseph Brewer published a paper on trauma. 
And they said, we found a solution to trauma. And there's two things that you can do. One thing is you can take revenge on whoever it is that fucked you up, you can fuck them up more. Okay, now they, they were speaking in German, so this is a loose translation. <laughs> but basically it was take revenge. The other one is if people can tell the story from beginning to end with appropriate, appropriate affect, that does it. And that's basically been the understanding of psychology for the last 130 years. Now, the value of modern trauma research is that that's actually not the case. That our nervous systems get wired in a particular way by trauma, and we need more than that. And that's where the modern trauma treatments have, have come into vogue and that they've been tested with neurobiology. What, what are some of the modern treatments? Well, first of all, one of the things that bothers me is the term somatic psychotherapy, which means body therapy. And it bothers me because I think it's a redundancy. Because if psychotherapy doesn't involve somebody's body, the fuck is it? You know? <laughs> What's going on? So it always has to involve the bodily attitude, which Nina Bull called um, uh, in the first part of the century. She's an interesting hypnosis research. So here's another one. Um, Trauma is, is encoded in our memory systems of our brains. Every human reaction is adaptive. Okay? PTSD is adaptive because we have PTSD, it freezes us. It takes us into primal survival, don't want to take any risk mode. Don't want to leave the house, don't want to say anything, don't want to do anything. Or if somebody comes out and they look dangerous, I want to really stop them, they might be dangerous, they might be trying to kill me. Overreaction, underreaction not present moment focused reaction. That's adaptive in a nervous system that has had the kind of trauma where life has been threatened. Um, uh, now, screws us up, of course, but you know, originally our nervous system does that to protect us. Okay? Um, it's, it's adaptive. Memory is like that. We have different kinds of memories. Implicit memories are memories that we encode automatically, and then they have action tendencies and re-stimulations, but we, we don't really know that they're memories, but they're telling us what to do. Um, for instance, um, if a dog snarled it at you when you were eight months old and you were frightened and scared and, and so on, when you're three years old, you might see a dog and be frightened and not know why you're frightened. If dogs snarled at you at two years old, um, after 18 months when your hippocampus develops, you might have an explicit memory where some dog snarls a year later and you, you go, yeah, I'm scared because the dog, dogs scared me before. It's an explicit memory. Both of those can lead to traumatic reactions. And those tra traumatic reactions, when we're in certain situations, will cue us to have emotions and stories and impulses. Now, in a human life, this has a cumulative effect over time. It shapes our sense of self. It shapes our personality. Um, it shapes our reactions to other people, which is a big deal, because everything is interpersonal. Everything is about relationships with other people and with ourselves. And so these four memory networks that are coherent and that guide us. And these memory networks can, can be accessed. And they're accessed every time we have a memory that has the emotion associated with that memory. For instance, remember the last time that you felt really uh, distressed, like, like there was some kind of distressing thing happened that was alarming you or making you really mad, that was somewhat traumatic. It might be a small T or a big T. Now, if you go to a big T trauma, 
Don't do it to a big T trauma where you kind of dissociate and go someplace else because then I'm going to have to spend the next 15 minutes kind of bringing you back from the other world into this room. And I don't mind doing that, but I'd rather not. Okay, so, you know, if it's a big T trauma, make sure it's something that you can handle. But remember a time that was a traumatic event. Just remember it. Okay. And remember to the extent that you can have the feeling in your body. Okay. All right, now I want everybody to remember a time when... So whatever your trauma is, it has something to do with you not being good and not appreciating beauty for instance or being powerless. Now I want you to remember a time when something intense was happening and you were really an advocate. You were, you were a star for beauty. You were, you were the goddess of beauty on earth. You remember a time that you felt in control. You felt very, very uh, strong and, 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 so, and had a lot of agency. Remember a time like that. Okay? And remember how you felt in your body. Everybody got one? Okay, yeah? Okay. Okay, so I want you to remember the first one where you, you, know, you felt bad in your body. And I want you to remember the second one where you're feeling good in your body. I want you to hold them together at the same time for about 30 seconds. Keep them together. You hold them at the same time. About 30 seconds. Just keep them there. Same time. Do it. Same time, yeah. All right, so what do you feel when you do this, when you hold them together at the same time? Is your body going, there's, there's, a, con there's a connection, there's an integration happening. Our minds, our body-mind systems are complex systems. And complexity theory is something I love a whole lot, you know, brought, come from Ilya Prigogine, chemist, which says if you have a complex system of linked differentiated parts that's energized, arranged hierarchically, like a human consciousness or a human group, um, it has a natural tendency to self-organize to more complexity. In human beings, more complexity is deeper consciousness and more compassion. When you have a memory with the felt sense, you're opening up that memory. In fact, when we have memories, we're basically remembering the last time we remembered it. This is a reconsolidation technique that has been popularized by Bruce Eckers. He's got a great book on it. If you take one of those memories that has a bad feeling and a bad thought about yourself, you put it together with an experience that has a good feeling, a good thought about yourself, and you hold it, your brain will naturally, without you doing anything else, self-organize to greater complexity. You begin to heal that. And if you practice this three or four times a day with whatever the traumatic memory is and the healing memory, it reconsolidates that memory and you begin to feel better. Now, the really cool thing about this is the other things that might be associated with that memory network, they begin to change, too. And the research on EMDR, Francine Shapiro's research, which is so staggering about it, and which got me learning EMDR, it took a lot for me to start going, okay, so I'm going to wave my fingers in front of somebody's eyes and, and, and have them think about it, and, go, and, and it's going to reconsolidate memories. Yeah, right. Well, okay, well, I'm an integral guy. You show me upper right quadrant research and lower right quadrant research that something's going to work, then I'm going to fucking do it. And I did. And, you know, it's not magic, but it, but it worked. You know, and I'm curious, why did it work? What this does is it activates your thalamus and your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Now, the thalamus is very interesting. Thalamus is the part of your brain that puts different things together into stories. And the theory is that when you have a trauma memory, because there's a lot of distress associated with it, you've never put it together into a coherent autobiographical story that fits for you. It's always caught there in the brainstem with the, with the, the negative arousal. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is associated with your sense of self in the world, of memory processing. 
So those two things get activated when you do the bilateral stimulation, and then you have the memory, and that gives your brain a chance to reconsolidate that memory into a more, uh, and this is why, a better network, and this is why Francine called it adaptive information processing. And she has a whole system in a big, great textbook, which um, I'm enjoying immensely. I'm not all the way through it yet. I take my time with this kind of stuff. So that's EMDR. Mm -hmm. That's another reconsolidation uh, technique. Um, uh, and now, <laughs> I am not an EMDR therapist, as I have said, um, but it, you, I don't know if I could work with, uh, Bessel van der Kolk said the same thing. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps Score, which is a great book on trauma. And he said, and I agree with him, I, I don't know how I could work with trauma without these techniques, the reconsolidation techniques or the EMDR. There's other things you can do, but they're way more difficult psychotherapeutically. Now, as an integralist, I'm particularly excited by where this is headed. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to give this talk is that all the trauma people kind of stop after people stop having trauma reactions. <clears throat> okay, you don't have symptoms anymore, you feel okay, everything's fine. Well, f for me, I go, wait a minute. Um, you notice all you guys how you're assuming that when we do this, the people start feeling better and more integrated about themselves? That's an assumption. Why do you think that's happening? What's, what's that about? You know, what is about, if you do adaptive information processing, um, why is it that, that we begin to feel more connected? We begin to feel better. Shapiro has said, you know, a lot of people who do this a lot, they start feeling senses of unity. They start feeling, and she didn't use the word world-centric. She did everything with world-centric. I went, you know, I know. You know, ask Keith. Keith, you know, I have the answer to that. Our systems, as we integrate, where do we integrate? We integrate up to spiral. That's where we go. You know, we go to green and to teal and then to turquoise. We go to world-centric. That's what, that's what our nervous systems wanted, wants to do. The only reasons that our brains aren't doing it right now is that, you know, we have blocks, dissociative blocks to doing it that we gradually work with throughout our lifetime. If you do an EEG, if you measure the electrical field that comes out of a human brain, it goes right to the edge of chaos. It stops there. Okay? The edge of chaos, what's that? That's a fractal boundary. That's where creativity happens. Okay? That's us. And it happens interpersonally when we're together, okay? which is one of the reasons that people get together and one of the reasons that intersubjectivity is so strong. And one of the reasons why one of the main trauma treatments from time immemorial is to be with people that love you and that you love, people you can tell the story to. But you're not just telling the story to someone, you're telling the story to someone who loves you. Because the bottom line is that love heals, and compassionate understanding is love in action, and you compassionately understanding me and my trauma changes my trauma if I allow it to. Yeah. So. Questions? Yes. So what about traumas from the pre-hippocampus that we have no memory of? Um, so that's common, uh, common for all of us. One thing about this is that um, if you ever reach a point where you're not making progress in the context of your life, ask somebody for some help. Therapists are good, but you know I'm always suspicious when I say that because, you know, if you're, it's the only tool you have is a hammer, you know, all problems look, look like nails. I'm sure there's a lot of things that you ask somebody who isn't a therapist for, say a spiritual teacher, say a coach, um, um, a teacher of any sort, 
So you ask for help. When someone comes to me and asks for help, I'm having an extreme reaction uh, to a situation. What we do is we begin to look at it from a wide variety of perspectives. And so that's the, the beauty of integrally informed therapy. You know, you just keep on going from one perspective to another. Say, so say you have a feeling, it's not associated with an event, but, it, but there's a feeling and a belief about yourself, okay? I've got some. Okay, so what is it? But we, I hate running. Okay. And my father told me something a couple of years ago that I thought could be linked. What was it? When I was little, and I don't know how little, I had something wrong with my legs and I had to wear a brace at night. And that was not a secret in my childhood, but the new thing was my father said, it made you so angry when we put that brace on you at night when we put you in your crib. Mm -hmm. So I think you do have a memory associated with this. Um, you might not have a conscious sense of it, but you notice how you feel as you tell me this story? Yeah. Where do you feel it? Um, lush. Yeah. So ask your body. Is, do your body want to run sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what do you say back to your body? Um, braces are gone. We can do that now. Okay, what does your body say back? Let's go. Let's go. And what do you feel in your body as you say this? You know, energized and lighter and uplifted. Uh -huh. So what we're doing now, because when we have a, a room like this, this container amplifies everything. So in this amplified moment, you know, this, this dialogue has extra intensity. And so now running is a choice for you. Now, you know, maybe you'll go out and run and maybe you won't. But if you get pissed off about running, you'll remember this moment. And if you remember this moment, you go back to that dialogue between what my body wants now and then what Mark says back to my body and have that dialogue. And if you do that, that will change. And then other things will change. I don't know what they'll be, but something good is going to happen. Thank you. You're welcome. Right on. Somebody else? In the back, right? Hi. Hey. Do you have any practices not only for resolving trauma with that kind of visualization or mm -hmm. the EMDR, yeah. for um, merging with or becoming that kind of higher being up the spiral? I got really excited when you started talking about that. Uh -huh. So like, personally, do you have any practices that you... <laughs> I'm really not a good guy to ask for my personal practices. I do practices all the time, you know, so I have a million practices. I'm exaggerating with a million, but you know, I do practices all the time. So let me go with my first association to your question. One of the problems that we all have as seekers is we have lots of peak state experiences, states of unity. How many, how many people here have had a state of unity experience, state experience of unity with everything? All right? Okay. How many people here have felt a sense of melding with another person that felt larger than just us? It felt like a love that was bigger than both of us together. Okay, we've all had that experience. How many people have been in nature and felt like there's something about me and nature that is that's somehow larger than everything? I feel one with nature. Okay, so we're going back. We're going through nature mysticism. Um, we're going, and I'm not going to go and guide into the second person. There's there's some difficulties there, but. We've all had these experiences. 
Now, one of the things that we get in spiritual communities is that if we routinely go to these experiences, we're not supposed to have other kinds of human instinctual responses, like, say, jealousy or greed or lust for my neighbor's wife or, I don't know, uh, you know, donuts, uh, <laughs> excess, you know, the, the, the third glass of wine, uh, whatever, okay? And so, Wow, I must not be very enlightened if I like you know, to go out and have donuts. I remember at Esalen once, I was at a workshop. And these two women were gossiping about another person, Esalen. This one woman said, she goes out Saturday night, she gets a whole six-pack of Pepsi. She drinks the whole thing. Just utter contempt. How enlightened can she be? Okay. So like... What do we do then? And this brings us to the next part of the night. We, we either deny it or we dissociate. No, I don't like Pepsi. I don't like donuts. You know? Oh, no, I don't like porn. It disgusts me. You know, sorry. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not defending anything, but, you know, I don't get disgusted. I mean, I have reactions. Disgust <laughs> isn't one of them. Um, so does that make me not enlightened? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I could stop being interested, frankly, in whether I was enlightened or not five or six years ago, which I thought was interesting. And I've noticed a lot of people do spiritual work. At a pretty point, they're just not interested. You know, sometimes I'm in an enlightened moment. Sometimes I'm not. Um, I like them, but, you know. Now, in that moment, I also have other stuff that comes up. Selfish keys comes up. Jealous keys comes up. You know, egocentric keys comes up. The interesting thing for me is, is there a part of me that comes up that I don't have compassionate understanding or radical acceptance for? And am I interested in that, or do I try to avoid it? That interface between whether I'm interested or try to avoid it, if I go to that interface, good things are going to happen. I'm not intending, and I don't encourage anybody to think that they're going to be blissed out the rest of their life or on anything. That's not what spiritual practice is about. What spiritual practice is about is compassionate self-observation and other observation, self-transforming mind, ultimately, where we basically keep the processes going, and then we surrender to whatever our mission from the infinite is, and we do our best to embody our values, recognizing we're going to do it imperfectly, and being interested in when we do it well and feel the goodness of doing it well, and being interested in when we do it, we do it badly and feel the distress of doing it badly. And this is what uh, Buddha meant by the end of suffering. It was this particular perspective. And so a really great practice is to notice when I'm not doing that, and then to get interested in it. Now, that goes against a lot of instinctual drives. It goes against our capacities to dissociate. And we'll take one more question, and then I want to talk a little bit about dissociation and trauma. Is that that's your question? Oh, really? So now you're not satisfied. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not satisfied. Do you want another practice? Um, no, it, it's not necessarily the practice. I'm, I'm just wondering if the work that you're doing has given you methods that you think help develop people past the, the kind of uh, uh, blockages that you talk about that get in the way of traveling up this so-called spiral. And if your work with EMDR or any other technique works in um, 
not just creating blissed out states, but actually leveraging people to higher levels of development. You know, I was talking with Ken Wilber about this yesterday. We were visiting him. This is a, this is a problem that, that we've been looking at for a long time. And it's a states and stages problem. So lots of states practices. But to a certain extent, the, there aren't stages practices. You learn about the stages. You do whatever your practices are. And then you, in relationship with other people, you allow yourself to be aware of what stage you're looking out of at any given time. Now, if you do that, um, after a while you develop faith in the fact that you're moving up the spiral at whatever rate you're moving. But it takes a long time to, to do a stage development. And this is one of the reasons that I don't do um, like three days, five days, seven days and stuff, because the promo of those things always secretly put the subtext below the surface is we're going to create a stage shift. And I go, you know, I can't promise that because I don't believe in that. I believe that I can give you tools, like the one that I gave you about observing, but stage shifts happen when they happen. Um, and it's only at Teal that you begin to be able to observe yourself looking through different stages. Now, if you want to practice with that, cultivate an awareness and ask people to help you. Am I looking and relating from teal, from green, from orange, from amber, from turquoise? And you'll find moments in each, probably. Um, and you'll find yourself wanting to, to self-identify at the higher ones and wanting to dissociate and deny the lower ones. No, no, I'm not being red. It's just, you know, my, I'm being spontaneous. <laughs> okay. Now, so that practice that I just described is the practice that I want the whole world to have. You know, Ken and I were talking about why not teach stages to kids the way we teach first, second, third grade, junior high school, high school, college. That stage model has been generally accepted. So why can't we teach an egocentric, conformist, rational, pluralistic, and integral stage model? Why not? You know, why couldn't that be as accepted as, you know, I'm better educated than you because I have a PhD and you're in the ninth grade. Nobody has a problem with that one. But I look out of teal more often than you look out of teal. You look out of orange more often. Um, you're stronger in orange than I am. You're ha you have more healthy red. I have less unhealthy red than you. These are conversations that you can't have with pretty much anybody but an integral crowd, for the reasons I love talking to guys like you. But, you know, what if that was part of the language? What would that do to the culture? We might see the third major shift, at least in Jeff's in my lifetime. Nobody's ever seen three shifts, and nobody's ever seen a shift to the second tier. So, you know, there's the, the, the problem. There's, there's a, a vision. I don't know if there's an answer. I don't, we don't know. These, I, don't, I, I would make a stab at, okay. at, at adding something to this, and that is that I don't know if this is a practice, but it becomes a way of life as one moves into integral second-tier consciousness. And that is that instead of turning away from our trauma and our pain and our unwanted material in our psyche, we turn towards it. 
And, and we do that because we know that when we turn towards it and metabolize it in whatever way we can, with other people, by ourselves, EMD, all these wonderful um, strategies, that there's so much energy. It's like a nuclear energy is released. And so we have that. And I, and I like the word you use, faith. We actually have faith that that's true. So then whenever I find myself in a depression or an anxiety or in an anger vortex, I say, this is the good news, because here I have this ball of energy and I have an opportunity to actually turn towards it and move into it. And that's new at second tier, at least in the way that we do it. I think that's also what happens in really early levels of first tier too, where you just, you know, that warrior stage, you just walk through the fucking fire. Uh, but this is a second-tier version of that. Yeah, I don't want to take up too much time, but are, are you suggesting that that is what creates growth? Is, yes, is absolutely. Like Keith's hold the trauma and the success and, and merge those, and that creates energy for growth. Yep. Yeah. That, that yeah. Makes sense. You're a new, bigger self. And I really like what you said. Um, you know, if you do that enough, turning towards it, you start automatically turning towards it. I, yeah, I'm at that sort of, on a good day, that happens for me, you know. Not yeah. to, today wasn't one of them, but <laughs> on a good day, it does happen. <laughs> well, it seems to happen every time you and I talk. <laughs> it's true. It, the reason why that's significant is that when it happens automatically, it's not my left hemisphere conscious self. You know, the part that kind of learns routines and kind of sometimes wrestles with my non-conscious self. Um, and the switching centers of the conscious self are in your left hemisphere, switching centers of your non-conscious, adaptive conscious, you're right. It, it's not like they exist there. There's always whole brain responses. Um, I think the neuroscientists read their data wrong when they say, you know, uh, uh, empathy is in the prefrontal cortex. I don't think so. I think empathy is in the entire brain, but the switching centers for empathy are in the prefrontal cortex. And the more robust they are, the more empathy you have. There's good data about that. Um, so dissociation. Uh, dissociation is a superpower. All mammals have it. And so uh, most mammals use it to stay in the present moment. And you know, there's, have I told the zebra story tonight? Okay, no. <laughs> zebra story. <laughs> So Robert Zapolsky wrote a book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. He's one of my favorite evolutionary biologists. He's at Stanford. Um, I've seen videos of him, read his books, like him a lot. So, okay, so you're the zebra, right? And you're, you're walking around the veld, and all of a sudden, light comes after you. Oh, no, you just take off. And luckily, if you have a little bit of space, a little bit of time, you can outrun that lion. You know? Just almost got killed and eaten by a lion, so if you're a zebra, you know, you go up around some other zebras and there aren't any lions around, you shake, 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 shake. And, you know, Peter Levine and, and uh, John Davidson, my teacher, a lot of other people have noticed that when people go in their trauma, often they shake. It's their nervous system releasing tension. Um, uh, when I studied symbol linking therapy, it was a body therapy. We wanted people's bodies to get to that place when they were thinking about their trauma, and it seemed to have a positive effect. And then after a while, the zebra goes, oh, there's some grass over there. It goes and starts eating it. Well, 
If I was that zebra, I would not be able to eat that grass and relax. I'd be getting ulcers because I was just got killed and eaten by a lion. There's other lions out here. What am I doing out here with lions? Okay. Um, but he dissociates. You know, his brain doesn't go there. Ken and I had kind of an argument about this. Ken says, you have to have a consciousness to dissociate. And I go, no, you don't. I don't think so. I think it's, a, it's something that all mammals do, except that the other mammals do it to stay in the present moment. Because they're not, if they're, they're not aware they're going to die. They're not aware they just almost got eaten by a lion. They're aware there's some grass there. I want to eat it. Oh, this tastes good. Don't get ulcers. Humans, on the other hand, if I was out there, the lion chased me and almost killed me. And I, you know, I jumped into the jeep and died. And I go, oh, God. You know? And there's a sunset that night in Africa. I'm looking. Everybody else is saying, what well, is a beautiful sunset. I'm sitting there, oh, my God, there's lions out there. You know, and I'm getting ulcers because I'm dissociating away from the present moment. I'm not enjoying that sunset. I'm playing my brain because I have this human superpower of being able to project to the end of time, beginning of, of time. I'm imagining that threat. My brain says, we have to stay alert because we don't want to get eaten by lions. And the way to do that is to worry about it all the time. Inner obsessive compulsive disorder. Why are we do that? Why do we have that capacity? Because our brain gets threatened and wants to, to giving, us, giving us threats all the time because it thinks if we're, if we're aware of the threats, we're not going to get caught in them. But what does that do? That takes us out of the present moment. And this is a particularly bad if you've had a big T trauma. A guy named Sidney McFarland in Australia did an experiment with a bunch of Australians. So they took some normal Australians, of which apparently there are many in Australia, and then took, uh, took some uh, PTSD Australians and hooked them all up, the brain machines, and then he looked at them and he looked them in the eye and went, eh, like that. I don't know where he came from. Maybe it's an Australian joke thing. I don't know, but he did that. So here's what happened to the normal Australians. First thing that happened is there was a brain wave that went back down their, their brain called an N200 wave that shut off everything that they were doing, basically dissociated away from everything else that was going on in their brain, and focused them on this guy going, eh, okay, what's going on here? And then they just, they just, when they did that, because they're not traumatized people, they went, oh, this guy doing an experiment, he's saying, eh, no big deal. And, you know, no autonomic arousal, no upper high blood heart rate, none of that stuff. Traumatized people, eh, no N200. There was a diffuse reaction. They actually had trouble focusing on what was going on. And when they wired them up, their brains were about one or two standard deviations less aroused than normal people's brains. They were shut down. And that was bad news. The PTSD had rewired their brains to stay out of the present moment. Um, it had shut them down. And their brains needed to be healed. Uh, and hopefully they got treatment after this. That was pathological dissociation. Now there's healthy dissociation, pathological dissociation. Healthy dissociation is driving to go skiing, and you're thinking about going skiing, and all of a sudden you realize you haven't thought of anything. You haven't even been aware of driving for the last 15 minutes. You've dissociated, but your habits, your shadow is driven. My unconscious has done a really good job getting me down the road. Healthy dissociation. Unhealthy dissociation. Uh, uh, I have uh, 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 an experience, uh, say, uh, of early uh, neglect or abuse. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a large T. It can be a big T. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big T. It can be a large T. It could be my mother looking at me and saying, I hate you. 
All right? that, that could do it. It could be somebody being 45 minutes late picking you up from preschool. It could be all kinds of things. People wire things the way they wire things. But then in a related situation at some point, my mind associates. And I'm not in the present moment anymore. Somebody's five minutes late, late and I'm furious. And they're late and I, I scream at them and I tell them how bad they are. Or someone's five minutes late and I space out. I've dissociated. That capacity now has blocked me out. And, I, and I, it's, an unpleasant for, it's an unpleasant sensation. I don't want to pay attention to it. It's me not. If, if I'm a kid and I do something wrong and someone disapproves and I feel ashamed, it's an uncomfortable emotion. I try to think of something else, perhaps. And then when I'm eight years old and I you know, steal some cookies from Johnny next door and I feel a little guilty, I try not to think about it. Dissociate. Dissociation, pathological dissociation, is part of all defensive mechanisms, and it's in, intricately intertwined with big T and little t traumas. And it's like we talked about earlier. It blocks us. It stops us. It's a blank spot. So what do we do with that? Well, we do all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, especially we do it in relationship with other people, especially because this comes up most often in intimate relationships, because that's when we're most vulnerable, we're most exposed, and we're most regressed. That's when our most primitive stuff comes up, right? It comes up in our intimate relationships, and we'll have weird reactions. Um, there's a guy who does lectures on marriage on the East Coast, and he talks about normal marital sadism. And, you know, and everybody thinks that's all cool and everything, but the, the, the interesting thing about his lectures to me is that not one person ever has asked him what normal marital sadism is. They all know, okay? They, it's, it's, it's felt knowledge. It's a primary metaphor. You know, primary metaphor is like, you know, you look up to someone. Nobody ever tells us we looked up to someone because we think they're great. That's a primary metaphor. Normal marital sadism is a primary metaphor because we all know that in intimacy, like, dark stuff comes out. Now, in that, though, lies great promise. Because in our intimate relationship, when something like that comes up, and we have a standard in our intimate relationship of expanding love and expanding kindness, not contracting love, not contracting kindness, that stuff comes up, you go, that was unkind. They go, yeah, that was. I wonder where that came from. So think about just that little interaction. I'm sorry, where did that come from? You go back and forth like that with the goal of expanding love and expanding kindness. You're shaping each other and healing each other. That's why when they did a study of 700 people that had been together for a long, 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 long time, you know, 30, 40 years, they said, What's, tell us about your life. What's the best thing that ever happened to you? They all said, you know, without exception, which is an incredible statistic, meeting my partner. Because they intuitively knew that they, because of the nature of those relationships, they had shaped each other. And there's people that are fucked up when they get married, but they work at it, and they are way less fucked up years later. There's people with insecure attachment status when they're married, have secure attachment status 20 years later. They've shaped it in each other through that, that bond. So, you know, half the time marriages fall apart because this stuff can, escalates and isn't attended to. Half the time it turns into something different. And, uh, and, and about, I'd say, probably a quarter of the time, it turns into something that is so amazing that you have to experience it to know what it's like. And to do that, you have to encounter these little dissociations, these little traumas that intrude, and then meet them, turn towards them, and reach for something better. 
And this is where our values inform us. And you know, our values progress as we progress. And that's one thing that Integral knows, that you know, our values are never static. You know, we're always adjusting. If there's ever a value that don't, you don't think that you can adjust to be in a better value, get curious about that value. Because you know, there probably is a better form of it. You'll probably encounter it someday. I hope you do. Yeah. So I th we're probably going to go another 15 minutes or so. Yeah, any Maybe questions? we take some more questions. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I was wondering if you could differentiate between what you call a trauma and a shadow. And I'm a therapist, so the, the clinical implications of how you work with that, if you've made that distinction. OK. <laughs> really encourage you to go to Amazon, check out Shadowlight, Illuminations at the Edge of Darkness. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, so first of all, the reason I wrote that book is because all change work, all therapy, basically is about growing people's shadow, their adaptive unconscious, their non-conscious selves. And shadow to me is everything that I'm not consciously aware of. And as we know from endless research, it's constantly flooding up. Flooding, you know, constructive impulses and ideas and, and stories, destructive impulses, always flooding up in response to the world and inner reactions, all the time. And a half second, second and a half later, our conscious self gets it, does something with it. You know, the only reason we're not overwhelmed with this torrent of material is that we just become used to it. It's like we've been on class four or five rapids all our lives. And we're so used to it, we don't know that we're on those rapids. Okay? So that's shadow. There's constructive, there's destructive shadow. Destructive shadow has impulses and stories that are maladaptive in the present moment. They cause us to do damage. They cause us to, someone, um, I talk a lot about attribution theory. Um, there's an interesting statistic. If you see somebody other than your spouse do something bad, there's a tendency to identify them by that one bad act. There's a tendency to forget about the fact that they're a, complete, they're a complex human being who did a bad act, and there might be reasons for it. The exception for that, is if you're in an intimate relationship. If your spouse does a bad act, your tendency is to make excuses for that bad act. Okay? Um, it's a function of the attachment bond. Trauma fits into this, into all destructive shadow, because destructive shadow is adaptive conditioning that's gone wrong. Hasn't been dialysized into constructive shadow. And the way that we grow shadow is we discern in every aspect of our life, what the constructive stuff is, and we surrender to it. I have an impulse to be kind. I'll do it. Um, I have an impulse to be selfish. I don't think I'm going to do it. That's destructive shadow. And we find the destructive shadow, and we go, OK, how do I dial dialysize this and turn this into constructive shadow? And we get interested in that interface. And that's a fractal interface between where our conscious awareness and the non-conscious stuff. And we're in the destructive areas, we dissociate away from it. We don't want to be aware of it. You know, I want to think that I'm enlightened so that I don't be aware of the fact that I just ate four donuts and didn't think twice about it. But what if I do look at it? So how come you ate four donuts, Keith? What's going on? What's, what's below the surface? So I turn towards it. As I turn towards it, I dialysize it. I change it until finally there's something there that helps me develop. And this is what we all do as psychotherapists in, in, a, in a variety of different ways. This is what intersubjectivity does if we're reaching for growth and development. 
You know, and that's why love heals and why compassion and understanding is love in action. And so what shadow does is it includes all trauma, but it's, it's larger than, than trauma. And there's all kinds of complexities to this because there's cultural shadow. There, there's no reason in the world why it should be, why we would all feel a sense of, of, of alarm, distress, titillation, something, if everybody in the room took their shirts off. But we would. Why? Because our culture has told us that's not a good thing to do. That's a wrong thing to do. If I told everybody to do that, I would become way less trustable as a person. And I wouldn't tell anybody to do that because I want to belong. Remember, you know, the, the hierarchy, you know, the, the, the include and transcend. Now, I like being aware of that. And so do you if you're a therapist, right? Because that gives you that, that observing ego, that self, to be able to observe all these things. And if something's not working, you go, okay, I have a lot of perspectives that I can offer that can help somebody move through that. Does that make sense? Okay. Steve. Thanks for um, the book and for all the good stuff you're saying. Um, I just had a question. I was, you were talking about how when we have a trauma and then we do practices to sort of overcome that trauma, it moves us. And taking peak experiences or sort of the spiritual experiences you mentioned, sort of bracketing those, I'm wondering if there's something like that we might think of in terms of the opposite of trauma. You know, something really good happens to you and whether, like the opposite of trauma, we could work it into our systems more thoroughly to achieve some growth. Yes, probably more than anything else, really. Diana Fosha in New York calls them transformance affects. They're the affects that are associated with um, uh, change and transcendence. The way she uses it in therapy is quite interesting. And people come in in distress, and so she'll have them go deeper into their distress. And then they'll be material, and they'll work with the material. And then there'll be a shift. And she's added this extra step. How do you feel about that shift that you just experienced? And they'll have an emotional experience. Sometimes it's joy, sometimes it's, it's you know, tears, but, but they're not tears of sorrow or tears of anger. The heart math people, um, they have the four core emotions that they teach people to generate again and again and again and again and again. They've had phenomenal success with anxiety, transforming anxiety, transforming depression. I highly recommend the heart math. Uh, and they, they work exclusively with state experiences with these. Um, that subjective sense of triumph that Pierre Genet observed 100 years ago, um, that's the association of going to that next level. And it's when we do that, when we have an insight, when we have that experience, there's a rush of dopamine in our brain. Ventrotegmental area goes, I like that. Bam. And it's good. And it's, it's what makes us seekers. It's why seeking feels so good. Not only that, we're born with at least seven temperamental traits, all of which are explained from an evolutionary standpoint, like you know, harm avoidance, cooperation, independence, so on. But one of them is self-transcendence. You know, what, what's the evolutionary function of self-transcendence? Well, apparently when there were people in a, in a tribe that had more self-transcendence, better things seem to happen to that tribe to the extent that it's in everybody's genome now. And self-transcendence involves these emotions. Now, there's a problem with them because we are human beings. We get addicted to stuff. And it's really easy to get addicted to 
tr transform its emotions. It really is. And so you, you can be addicted to them just like anything else. And you can avoid your life by meditating four hours a day. Um, and you can say that these emotions, like shame or guilt or disgust, are the inferior, they're the sucky emotions. And now here are the good emotions, you know, joy and love and all that stuff. Okay, well, that's not a real good idea. Because a, a healthy human being is uh, characterized by a wider and wider and wider range of capacity to experience emotion and blends of emotion. And that means we learn over time to look at all of them, you know, the great ones as well as the distressed ones, all of them as gifts and as important messages to us because they all have stories and impulses associated with them. And all those stories and impulses are coming right out of our shadow, our non-conscious self, to help us live in love well. And so, yeah, I think a lot about those. I pursue them a lot. At, at this point in all of our lives, um, there are saints. So these saints are, are there. They're in our unconscious. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Okay, so I want you to be aware of your inner saint. And I want you to, to, to ask your inner saint. Just feel the inner saint and say, inner saint? Um, what do you want to tell me? Tell me, tell me what you want to tell me, inner saint. I'm listening. What do you want to tell me? Send, send me a sign, inner saint. So when you do this, what do you feel? What comes? Somebody. Love. Okay. Well, anybody else feel love? Yeah. That's why, you know, love heals. Compassion and understanding is love in action. So we want to liberate those inner saints into the world. That's self-transcendent. And I don't know what my inner saint's going to do. I have, I have no fucking idea at this point. I'm just trying to keep all the processes going. I didn't know I was going to write a book about shadow. It just showed up on my queue, you know, out of dialogues with different people. And I went, okay. You know, my publisher asked me to write it. Okay, I'm not, I, so two years later, here it is. And my inner saint liked that. So we want to liberate that. And, you know, we also have inner assholes. You know, we have inner dicks and bitches. You know, we have inner fucked up people. We have, you know, inner self-indulgent Trump children, you know? You had to go there. <laughs> I just can't no, help we myself. We have to. It's, it's required. So we all have that, too. When they show up, they need to be dialysized. They need to be, we don't need to ignore them, dissociate away from them. To the contrary, we need to love them. We need to acknowledge them. We need to give them the boundaries they never got. We need to give them the expression that they need, the healthy expressions that they were never taught by other people. We need to put them in touch with our saint. You know, our inner saint is not going to say, whoa, I have the solution for you, drop dead. It's the inner saint will never say that to any part of us. The inner saint will say, I have the solution for you. Well, I welcome you into my arms, and I'm going to tell you where you belong in our community and how you can serve the world. Well, I think that's a good place to put a period at the end of that uh, sentence. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. Keith Witt. And Jeff Salzman. Good seeing you guys. Thank you all for attending.
Hello, everybody. This episode is part two of a two-episode set on the topic of trauma. The first part was recorded live at the Integral Center, and this part two is a conversation that Keith and I had by phone, which is how we normally do things. In part one, Keith focused on what he calls small T traumas, the everyday humiliations and rejections and setbacks that we all share as human beings. And in part two, he's going to focus on the large T traumas, such as violence, abuse, an accident, time in a war zone, the big dramatic events that can wreak havoc on our lives if they are not dealt with effectively. So to that end, here we begin with Dr. Keith Witt. So in the last talk that we had on trauma and development, we focused more on small T traumas, the petty humiliations, the problems that we have developmentally, um, the issues that didn't get solved, um, that created defensive programming, uh, affected our personality development, and so on. And the reason that, that I thought that that was important is because I wanted to normalize the fact that we grow often through our triumphs and our, and our traumas and that, and that there's a lot of normal traumatic events in every human being's life that, that shapes them in many ways, starting from um, being in utero. Um, and, I, and I remember saying when we were doing that that I'm going to spend most of the time talking about the small T traumas. You know, my mom didn't pick me up for an hour. It was an hour late picking me up from the second grade. Um, and I, you know, the, the boy next door, you yelled at me and called me names, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to trivialize big T traumas, uh, assaults, rapes, car wrecks, um, um, uh, experiences in battle. Um, these events, uh, would, and they're called big T traumas by Francine Shapiro, who developed uh, eye movement desensitization uh, reprocessing. Um, these also are, are profoundly uh, important in shaping who we are, how we deal with the world, what our personality is, um, our good habits and our bad habits, and so on. And I wanted to devote a whole shrinking pundit talking about big T traumas, talking about uh, how they happen, talking about how they're understood and not understood in the larger culture, and what we can do about them, uh, how we discover them in ourselves and in the people around us, and um, how to manage them in a way that supports our development. Because as integralists, we're all fascinated with development, but the process of development itself is ridiculously complex and um, is, is not is a messy, messy process. And probably the messiest part of it is the part of it that has to do with being traumatized. And so first of all, to everybody who's listening to this, um, as we talk, if you get stimulated, if you have a distressing memory um, or uh, uh, extreme feeling, um, as we talk about um, uh, these kinds of uh, big traumatic events, go talk to somebody you trust about it. And then if you feel better, that means that there's a part of you that has taken that and integrated it to a certain extent. And after you talk to someone you trust about it and you don't feel uh, a lot better, go to find a therapist 
and talk mm. about it. Because the worst thing about traumas with people is that people tend to feel ashamed of them. And this is why a lot of rapes aren't reported. Um, and when you're ashamed of them, what you do is you you uh, dissociate from them, you, you press them, you do classic repression, which is you push it out of awareness. And then it'll in, impact you in different situations in not very great ways and impact your sense of self. And you don't, we don't want that. And so if you remember something, um, uh, talk to someone you care about about it. Uh, don't try to forget it. And, and the, the goal about tra traumatic memory is not to forget about it. It's, it's to remember it without distress because the way that trauma hurts us is not in the past because the past is gone. The way that trauma hurts us is in the present moment, um, with the way where it stays alive in us in a particular sense. Um, and that's what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the big T traumas. P part of understanding this is understanding it from an evolutionary standpoint. There's a, a, a term in evolutionary studies called co-evolution. And what co-evolution um, refers to is that we often develop competing drives that, that kind of regulate each other. For instance, we have a drive to cheat on each other, but we also have a drive to be very jealous if our partner is cheating on us. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they kind of balance each other out. We have a, a drive to, to learn and to grow and, and to, to share and care and be fair, but we also have the drive to be cautious and defensive and aggressive when we experience threat or trauma. Um, there's uh, one theory called social cont contagion theory that thinks that the fear of the other is based on um, a genetic predisposition to avoid other tribes because of parasites and viruses, it, that it happens on, on that, most, that basic uh, level. Um, and so co-evolving with the drive to program trauma learning in us, you know, our nervous systems with a trauma will, will change to try to protect us from similar things in the past and to protect us from the intrusions of the trauma, which I'll talk about in a second. But, but parallel to that, we also have an adaptive information network in our, in our brains. And when we uh, access that and, and bring it online, that adaptive information network is also a drive to resolve traumatic memory. Um, to resolve the habits that might be counterproductive or unhealthy habits. And what we want to do is we want to activate that adaptive information network to deal with traumas that have intruded into the present moment. Whenever there is an extreme reaction, okay, an extreme reaction to an event where, let's say, on a scale of distress, there's a one, which is minor distress, and a 10, which is just catastrophic distress. So say uh, you're having an argument with your lover, and you know, he, you know, he thinks your shoes look ugly, and, and you, instead of having maybe a two or a three reaction to that, you have an eight. You're just livid with distress that mm -hmm. he thinks your shoes are ugly. When you have an extreme reaction like that, um, quite often, that means that there is a, a previous traumatic event in your life or a series of events that have sensitized you to a particular form of stimulus. Mm -hmm. And so when that comes, you don't just have an, a, a proportionate uh, reaction to that stimulus. You have a disproportionate reaction. And that's usually a clue that there is some kind of trauma history there. 
And that, that can be small T traumas. It can be how you were treated and, and, and met as a kid. Or it could be a big T trauma where there was a major public humiliation that left you just cold and shaking. And, and afterwards, anytime anyone said anything distressing about your clothes, you just found yourself going into uh, extreme arousal, either complete shutdown and numbness, extreme fear, extreme rage, that kind of stuff. Okay. Most often when there's an extreme reaction, um, there's some kind of traumatic events in, in history. And, and everybody who's listening to this, you can kind of get a sense of it. Is Think about the last time you were super upset about something. Super upset. Okay, so I'm remembering the last time that I was super upset about something. And just, just remember how you felt. Remember what it was like in your body. Remember the flavor of being super upset, super upset. And now remember a, a previous time in your life, any time in your life before, before that event, where you had a similar flavor of experience, a similar sense, a similar feeling. It might, not, it might be a similar situation or a completely different situation. Just remember a time when you felt a similar sense that you felt in that super upsetness. Okay. All right. Now, as you do that, what you're doing is you're putting together a little bit of your trauma history because that original event probably fed into and activated you a little bit extra in that time that you got super upset. And that's one of the main ways that trauma intrudes into the present moment. And so that's how you find out. Now, if, if you're having a, a, a PTSD reaction, a classic PTSD reaction, you are immobilized with terror. Um, often you'll have images, you'll have flashes of, of sound or smell or color. Um, there might be an intruding image of a car wreck or of a battle scene um, or of somebody dying. Um, and it, it fills up your, uh, uh, your senses. Um, uh, this, this, now, this happens to about 6% of people that have some huge trauma. You know, by a year later... Um, well, 6% of people that have – a year later, they'll have some kind of post-traumatic reaction. Most of the time, that fades by itself in a couple of years. If it doesn't fade in a couple of years, it tends to persist and needs more intense uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. um, there's a young woman I work with um, that had a catastrophic car accident. And six years later, um, there's certain situations where uh, car accidents get brought up, and she has to politely excuse herself and go cry a little bit before and come back in to continue because her body goes into the reaction. And she's worked on it enough so that she can manage it, but her nervous system still delivers that post-traumatic reaction. And the, and the reason for that is some nervous systems are more vulnerable to developing a post-traumatic uh, reaction, um, and some are less vulnerable. Uh, there's a, a woman named uh, Rachel Yehuda who, who did a lot of studies with 9-11 um, survivors. And she found that there was a resilient system that made people resilient to trauma. And then there was a vulnerability system that made people vulnerable to develop post-traumatic reactions. And she found that they were two separate systems. Hmm. So you can, you can be a highly resilient person but still be vulnerable to developing a post-traumatic reaction. Or you can be, have practically no resilience, you know, get upset by anything, but have a very little capacity. Um, they're, they're kind of separate systems. And so now that's, that's post-traumatic stress reaction. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder is not the most common um, reaction 
to trauma. Um, to adult trauma, the most common reaction to trauma is depression, actually. And uh, depression actually should be in uh, the, the post-traumatic section of the diagnostic manual, and it's not for a variety of reasons. But the evidence is, is, shows that for every trauma, extra trauma that a person has, they become more likely to develop uh, depression. And these big traumas are very common. In one sample in Australia of 25 to 35-year-olds, they had an average of four big traumas in their life. And so it used to be thought that these were very unusual events. No, about, about two-thirds of the population has had something that, that qualifies as a big trauma in their lives. And just You said two-thirds? Yeah, two-thirds of the population of just everybody. Uh-huh. Um, has had a big T trauma that we're talking has, about. Has had a big T trauma. And mm -hmm. so two-thirds of everybody listening, you've probably had a big T trauma and it's affected you in some fashion. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a study that was done in San Diego by Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda. It's called the ACE study, Adverse Child Event Study, because this is a study that dramatically changed everybody's understanding of childhood trauma. Okay. Now, what this guy Filetti was, was uh, he was a doctor who worked with dramatic weight loss in the 90s. He would take people of four or 500 pounds and he would do supplemented fasting and they would go down from like 450 pounds to 150 pounds, 430 pounds. Uh, but he found that his people, not surprisingly, would, would gain the weight again. And then there was one person, one woman that he worked with, who went down to 135 pounds. She was a night nurse at a, at a um, nursing facility. And in a period of five weeks, gained 35 pounds. And wow. it just, just blew his mind. He went, well, how did this happen? So he questioned her. He said, well, what happened? She said, oh, nothing. No, really, what happened? So the third time he asked, he said, well, when I got down to 135 pounds, one of the older doctors uh, at the facility suggested, a yeah, married guy suggested we have a secret affair. And I went home and started eating and haven't stopped. So Filetti, being a very smart guy, uh, an internist, said, well, you know, we're in Southern California in, in the 90s. I mean, <laughs> you know, th sure, that was, that was a, an awkward overture. But, but why such an extreme reaction? Remember, you have these extreme reactions. And he, is there anything that ever happened in your life that was similar to this? And she says, well, now that you mention it, I was repetitively molested by my grandfather when I was a child. Mm. And that I felt like I'd lost my wall. Mm. And, and so he went to his weight loss people and started forming groups. And he asked them, um, so what kind of things happened for you? I mean, what's the, what, what, what happens for you when you lose weight? First of all, he found out that 50% of them had been molested when they were children. 50%, mm -hmm. an astounding, staggering figure. Um, especially because there were textbooks in the 70s that said incest was one in a million. Yeah. And so, so he, he published his findings and he, he talked at a conference. And some of the, 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 the idiot psychiatrists in the concert said, oh, those people are making that up. He went, no, they're not making it up. But one guy who worked for um, the National Institute of Health, Robert Anda, said, this is important and you and I should do a study. And so they got it funding, and he went to Kaiser Permanente. Uh, this is Vincent Filetti, who was a doctor with Kaiser Permanente. And they, they uh, recruited 17,400 people, and they asked them about how many of 10 categories of traumatic events they'd experienced when they were kids. Mm 
Um, and these 10 categories fit the categories that were most frequent uh, traumatic events that they'd heard about. And the 10 categories were these. Um, physical abuse, not, not normal spanking, but physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, which was constant humiliation, physical or emotional neglect, um, having a, a, a member of your family incarcerated, having a member of your family with a mental illness, observing your a parent, usually your mother, uh, being a, a subject of uh, domestic violence, um, having someone who's addicted to something in your house, or, or not being raised by both biological parents. So they, these are categories of, uh, of trauma that mm -hmm. they asked everybody about. And so when they collated their, found, their findings, they came up with astounding correlations. For instance, 28% of the women and 16% of the men had had some kind of sexual intrusion, some type of, of sexual um, uh, um, trauma before they were 18. 28% of the women, 16% of the men. They found out that people that had six categories or more lived on average 20 years less than people who had no of uh, none of these categories. Wow. They found that the more categories you had, the more likely you were to commit suicide, the more likely you were to be addicted, to smoke cigarettes, to be depressed, to have anxiety disorders, to be incarcerated, to be mentally ill in every way, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, depression, anxiety, and so on. Uh, the, the correlations, just one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Um, and uh, these statistics just blew everybody's mind because there is a cultural standard to um, deny trauma and to be ashamed of it. Most people who are traumatized as children feel ashamed of it mm -hmm. because children tend to, to make sense of the world by being responsible for what happens to them. And also the people that traumatize children blame them for it. And so, you, you know, when I work with somebody that's been traumatized as a child, I'll say, well, how do you feel about that little kid who was physically abused or was sexually abused? And more often than not, they say, I hate that kid. Oh. Um, yeah, I know. It breaks your heart. And so part of the work is you, you, I, I'll tell him, you know, so that kid wasn't responsible and you need to love that kid and that kid needs to feel loved by you. And that's part of what we're going to do. And that's part of how you treat trauma. Um, you find the parts of you that you have dissociated from or you despise or you're ashamed of. And you learn how from in a safe environment with a therapist and with other people to bring those figures in and to love them. And that connection accesses that adaptive information network that we're talking about and helps people resolve trauma. But it, one thing that they also did at Kaiser Permanente is they, they got a written questionnaire for people who are getting routine physicals. And for 130,000 people, they just asked them, did you have any of these categories of trauma? And if the answer was yes, the doctor who was who was examining them and say, well, I see you said yes on um, being molested as a child. Could you tell me how you think that has affected you in later life? And they would talk for a couple of minutes about it. Well, what they found out is the year after they asked these questions, first, first in written form and then asking about the yeses, they had a 35% reduction in doctor's visits and 11% reduction in emergency room visits. 
Hmm. Now, now Kaiser Permanente has a six billion dollar outpatient um, budget, and so these figures was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to them. And just just being asked, just acknowledging it to another human being, mm-hmm. was enough to dramatically reduce a lot of physical illness. And it it brings to mind the the ritual of the confessional that's been around for seventeen hundred years. You know, it make, makes me understand why that ritual has continued and continued and continued and continued. Um, having an enlightened witness does something to someone when they're talking about a shameful secret. Yeah. Um, and it has a healing effect. Now it doesn't completely heal, but but man, it has a powerful effect. Mm-hmm. And so that's that. Out of this came the understanding that one, uh, traumatic events uh, are very, very, very common, and two, they're toxic developmentally. Uh, they cause an awful lot of problems, and people began to reconceptualize a lot of issues like addiction, for instance, or compulsive overeating, or compulsive sexuality, uh, or any of any of the process disorders, any of the addictions, and a lot of depression, anxiety, as actually solutions that children's nervous systems had come up with and adolescents' nervous systems had come up with in response mm-hmm. um, to the to these the 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 programming of these traumatic events because these events these tra- these traumatic events don't just you know, linger and and take the form of of causing us to be extra stressed causing us to have post traumatic reactions causing us to be more depressed also, what these traumatic events did is they blocked development at crucial developmental critical periods. Um, critical periods are times when brains are especially doing neurogenesis and and apoptosis, you know, killing cells that aren't being used and creating new, new uh, neurons. And there are lots of critical periods growing up. There's uh, when you're born is a critical period, 10 months is a critical period, 18 months. You can see this is where kids begin to walk, where they begin to talk. Three years is a critical period when they can begin to have co-corrective play. Five years is a critical period. Period when you can develop autobiographical narrative. Eight years is a critical period when you begin to develop a more coherent sense of self. Eleven years is a period where you where you begin to develop capacities for formal operational thought. Well, if you're traumatized during these times, you don't develop. Your brain is compromised, and then that compromised brain creates more developmental problems. And a lot of them have to do with learning, and a lot of them have to do with how you feel. And then people feel bad, and they don't learn very much, or they don't have very good attentional skills because their frontal cortex hasn't developed um, adequately. And then they develop solutions to that, and those solutions tend to be problems. Like overeating or isolating yourself or you know things like that. Oppositional behavior, temper tantrums, right. you name it. Um, now – Speaking again of big T traumas, if you make it out of childhood without big T traumas, you're still not safe, unfortunately, because they used to think that if you had a trauma and you didn't have any reaction, you were fine. Well, no. Uh, following soldiers before and after deployment, they found that when soldiers came back from deployment, not only um, were they more prone to depression, but their brain waves had changed. Um, the the frontal cortex that has to do with thought and 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 um, 
decision-making, the brain waves were down. Usually a healthy EKG is the front of your brain, your forebrain operates at, a, at um, what's called low beta, you know, about 12 to 15 hertz. And then the, the back of your brain, the sensory motor areas, you know, the occipital and parietal areas, they, occupy, they, they operate at theta and alpha, you know, somewhere between 5 and 12 hertz. And then there's a coherent rhythm that, that helps people um, focus on what's going on, helps people have a proportionate reaction to stimuli and so on. Guys who had come back from, from battle, um, their front uh, networks were down-regulated. They, they, were, they were getting below uh, 12 to 15 hertz. And the back uh, lobes were up-regulated. They were getting higher. Essentially, they were getting very sensitized to small things in the environment that would hijack them and cause them to get super alert and super defensive. And their capacity for, for um, working memory, which is like the eight seconds that we're – we're always walking around in a sausage of time, about eight seconds. Their capacities to work in, in – in, to, to operate in working memory got progressively worse the more they were deployed. Um, nobody had known this before. Um, nobody knew that there are lingering effects. And these effects about having compromised short-term uh, memory, uh, working memory, um, continued years after people being deployed. And so what, it's, what it tells us is that when you're traumatized, it has effects on the way that you're neurologically put together. It had effects on the way that you respond to the world and your sense of self. And that these effects can continue. Um, and what's important about that is we want to be aware of that and instigate processes in our lives that help us notice when that's happening and then activate these adaptive information uh, processing networks that I was talking about to help us grow because our brain doesn't want to be dysfunctional. Our brain wants to be functional. It wants to have coherent uh, patterns. It wants to have um, good abilities to be uh, fully present in the present moment and not have intrusions from the past. And so what we want to do is we want to give our brain a chance to do that. And the number one thing that helps our brain do that is, you guessed it, loving contact with another person who understands us deeply. Mm-hmm. And so again and again, you know, when we talk about um, trauma, when we talk about mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar, what are the things that, that characterize the people that do better and the people that do worse? People that do better have caring people around them and they receive influence from those caring people. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why if, if you, you're chronically anxious or if you have a substance abuse disorder or if you have flashbacks or if you're depressed, you go to a therapist. And you create a culture where he's the enlightened or she's the enlightened witness. We explore who you are and how you're put together and so on um, from an accepting and caring and compassionate place. And we begin to connect those places that have been disconnected. And this is very hard when it comes to big T traumas because if you were raped, you don't want to go back to the rape. Right. If you if you were beaten up by your parent, you go back to being beaten up by your parent and it feels – or molested or you go back to you know your, your – one guy I worked with, um, his father was a pharmacologist who was an asshole, and he used to heavily medicate his three kids and leave them alone in their house for three days while he went off and did whatever the hell he did. Wow. Okay, so this guy had a lot of trouble remembering that. He would begin to get really spacey as if he was you know, on, on, on an opiate. Mm -hmm. And so 
he and I had to get current in the present moment and then do little forays back to those moments when he was on, he was in that state, um, just connecting them. And in those states, it's not just the feeling of, uh, it's the, it's, it's the sense of somehow I'm not worth my father staying and taking care of me. Um, I have, I'm not a worthwhile person. Um, something I did uh, caused my father yeah. to not do this. Mm-hmm. And, and so we needed to examine that. We needed to connect him with those parts from a place of a loving engagement. And this is one of the main ways that trauma has been treated historically. Um, but, you know, we're integralists. And so as an integralist, I know that anytime, anytime I find any treatment, um, no matter how great it is, that it's partial. And this is what um, my favorite researchers in trauma are saying. Uh, Rachel Yehuda is one of my favorites. And she said, the truth is, some of the treatments work some of the times for some of the people. Mm-hmm. And, and so as, a, as an integral therapist, what you do is you start off with always with, with the relationship. But then you go, okay, you know, what are the, first of all, how, what are the manifestations of this trauma in your current life? And second of all, let's start trying things and we'll see what works for you. Um, and some of the things that people have come up with in the last 20 years are mind-boggling. Um, and I'm going to mention just a few of them. Okay. Um, one of them is neurofeedback. <laughs> Neurofeedback, uh, I've been studying it a lot recently. Um, I've, it's, caught, it's caught my imagination. And, you know, when my imagination gets caught, you know, Keith gets lost for three or four months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listening, listening to lectures and, and reading books and experimenting with his, with his clients. Um, neurofeedback puts a little cap on your head that has 20 um, electrodes that connect to 20 different areas of your brain. And it sees how your brain is firing um, uh, normally and also how your brain fires when you're remembering things. And what a neurofeedback person will, will do is they'll see where your brain isn't coherent or where it's not working the way that it should. And they'll put you in front of a screen and it'll put earphones on you. And the earphones will give you a little a little um, uh, reward sound when your brain waves are going in the direction they want them to go. Hmm. You know, for instance, earlier, you know, you want those frontal networks to be in what's called the sensory motor rhythm, which is 12 to 15 hertz. And you want your back, the back networks to be in um, alpha, which is around 8 to 12, and, and some theta. And you, and you want a coherence um, between your cortex and your thalamus. You want that to be coherent. And so you'll be looking at a screen and say there's three spaceships and they'll say the, – the person will say, well, we want the green one, the one in the middle to go. And so you'll try to make it go and, of course, it doesn't go. And the person says, just relax and watch the screen. Right. And every, every time you get the right brainwave, the green spaceship goes a little bit. And it's very much like a conversation where you watch somebody's face and you're, you're playing off of their micro expressions. Mm-hmm. And so with neurofeedback, as you do that, your brain waves begin to get more oriented. Now, this is especially great for kids because kids are concrete operational. They're not really able to have much insight. And so what do you do with a kid who has overwhelming bursts of fear or terror or rage, especially Mm. rage? 
and has no capacity for attention. Well, since the 70s, what we've been doing is medicating the hell out of these poor kids and and medicating the hell out of the country. And I have a lot of problems with that. And I will not get on a soapbox about pharmaceutical companies and everything at this particular moment. Let's just assume it's three minutes from now and that Keith has raved and ranted and frothed for (laughs) about three minutes. And now it's saying, so what happened in the 70s then is a lot of the the research on neurofeedback stopped. It wasn't getting funded because there's no money in it. But then the research started happening. And what they found is that with a lot of kids, particularly acting out kids, you put them in front of the three spaceships and they have 20 to 40 to 80 of these sessions and the kids are able to concentrate. The kids don't have their temper tantrums anymore. They're able to function. And there's no negative side effects, only positive effects. Now, it's not a, it's, it, you know, every treatment is partial. Um, people that are overwhelmed with emotion um, of any sort, sadness, anger, fear, terror, anxiety, depression, rage, um, neurofeedback helps them develop regulatory circuits um, that help them from the, particularly because our, regu- our self-regulatory circuits go from the frontal cortex back to the amygdala, which is, you know, um, in the middle of our brain that controls arousal to a large extent. We develop habits of regulating those. Now, brains like to be regulated. Brains like to be operating functional. And so you show brain how to work right. It goes, hmm, I think I want to keep doing this. It's a self-reinforcing process. Um, it's also similar with the EMDR that I demonstrated on you in our last talk. Um, you give the brain a chance to do adaptive information processing in a memory network. Um, a memory network is, you know, say I, I get super anxious when my partner and I are about to have sex. And then I go back and I find out that I was traumatized sexually, uh, um, either by humiliations or by molestation or by rejection or mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Well, when you begin to open up those networks um, and, uh, and you've worked on two or three of those episodes, because usually we have more than one. The brain seems to keep that process going. And so in some EMDR studies, people, after they stopped their EMDR, four months later, they were a lot better than when they stopped. This never happens with Prozac studies, uh, with, with medication studies. Why is that? Well, the brain apparently continued to keep self-organizing in these areas to help people feel better. Um, well, that's a, that's a big deal. Another way of dealing with it is, um, you know, uh, uh, I used to do ceremony with a guy named Jade Wahoo. He was trained by a Russian shaman and a Native American shaman, which is a pretty weird combination if you ask me. But <laughs> it goes to show that, that the shamanic tradition kind of has its – draws from the same well. And his understanding – he said every time a traumatic event happens, you get a spiritual parasite in your body. And it just kind of lives in there and gives you shit. Now, now you know, this sounds kind of, uh, you know uh, – uh, weird, but you know, Freud back in 1893 said that when people had trauma, the trauma would continue to have a separate existence in their in their lives and would mm-hmm. influence. Them, yeah. Basically, saying the same thing. So what Jade would do is we'd all get together and we would do ceremony, and you know we would chant, we would drum, and we'd sit around, and and he would smoke sacred tobacco, and and he would do a ceremony. He would suck spiritual parasite out of your body with a, with a little narrow copper tube and spit it into a cup and then you go throw it in the garden someplace hmm. <laughs> so we did that a couple of times um, uh, I remember one time he said look 
if, if anybody starts going into the other world, I don't want you to go wander around in there uh, because then I have to spend the rest of the night bringing you back. He says, so you, you're around the other world. I want you to stay with me. And I thought, sure, Jade. Sure enough, about 35 minutes later, there I was in the other world. I was going, God, I want to just go hang out here. And I remember what James said, oh, shit. You know, so I, I stuck around. Huh. So anyway, I, I asked Jade, I said, well, is there a way of, of dealing with this other than having, you know, ceremony having a parasite removal? And Jade said, yeah. He said, you hold yourself in the heart of abiding love. In the heart of abiding love, no, no spiritual parasites can exist. Hmm. Basically saying, big heart heals trauma. You know, if we, can, if we can bring trauma into big heart, it gets resolved. We can bring, bring heart, trauma into big heart. And, and I like the idea of bringing it into big heart rather than big mind, for instance. I, I mean, a big, it's, it, it, and, and, I, and at least in terms of my experience as a therapist, Basically, for the last 43 years, one subtext of every session is my clients and I come into Big Heart together, and we stay in Big Heart the whole session. Yeah. And we do stuff, and we talk about stuff, and you know, there's a bazillion other things that, that we do. But one thing that's constant is we're always in Big Heart together. Um, and so learning how to be in Big Heart and bringing your traumas into Big Heart, yeah. that helps resolve traumas. No, it's beautiful, and it's... It's just so basic. I mean, I think when I think of just what you've said about how to heal trauma, one is to go back and, and relate to traumas in your past and feel the feelings from the past and, <laughs> and just have that kind of an awareness. And then you're talking about how even just explaining your trauma to a bureaucrat at Kaiser, <laughs> yeah, you know, even that, you know. Uh, just being seen in that way is so powerful. And then to, you know, hold it in abiding love yourself and, and confess it to a close friend or, a, you know, a therapist. These are just so basic and so beautiful uh, and so healing. It, it, we just intuitively know that this is the way to freedom. You know, one of my great fantasies, how, how Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. Well, what if we did a moonshot? around supporting infants and mothers. Yeah. Uh, what if we did a moonshot where infant, you know, pregnant women got a lot of attention and they got not just, you know, resources, but people who talk to them at least once a week, maybe twice a week, help them with their nutrition when they're pregnant, help teach them about how, particularly young women, uh, um, teenagers, help them learn about baby care and so on, work with them and their partner. And then after the baby's born, visit them once a week and just see how the baby's doing and how they're doing and work with them. Mm -hmm. When they have done programs like this with at-risk mothers, usually single mothers, the rate of mental illness and incarceration for their children years later is cut 50%. 50%. In one generation we could cut the amount of mental illness and incarceration in our country by half if we just made sure every single mother, every single pregnant woman, every single new mother had these resources. And something that just drives me crazy is there's three or four programs that have done this with uh, at-risk mothers, demonstrated the worth of it. And then after a few years, some bureaucrat 
usually a conservative bureaucrat, not that I'm picking sides here, but I am obviously, <laughs> defunds it. And then now they don't have the access to this. Um, for every dollar that you spend for something like this, you save eight or nine dollars socially in the next 15 years. Um, and so, God, I, to me, if, if, if there's one thing that our society could do that could radically uplevel everything, it would be that. Um, and, you know, and I, all I can do is talk about it. Yeah. Um, and, well, and in the meantime, people can do it on their own. I mean, that just knowing that is yeah. so where's the where's a mother I could pay, pay attention to? Or, you know, is there some nonprofit that is doing this that I could support? I actually think that our culture is headed towards, you know, a far more uh, intelligent safety net. But until we get there, we could be doing it on our own. I completely agree. And and also understanding this helps. One thing that w- was struck me in this research is the tremendously damaging effect of combat on human beings. Mm. That the 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 psychological yeah. damage from these fucking wars um, that we've had in the last oh, you, you know whatever these, you see these children in Syria you just think oh lord uh, oh god it, it it's just uh, um that that any war that is that is not one hundred absolutely percent one hundred percent necessary you know, the the only reason that I can imagine for war is to present gen- to prevent genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, beyond that there, don't do it, you know, do other things. Um, and, and, and of course that was, that was, uh, Obama's, uh, philosophy. Um, and that's been the, the philosophy of a lot of enlightened people. Uh, that was Gandhi's philosophy. Um, you know, we could go back to Aristotle and Socrates, uh, uh, that was their philosophy. Um, uh, Plato said, uh, when, when children are small, we should take them into the sanctuaries and we should teach them how to engage in, in virtuous play. Well, those sanctuaries aren't just teaching them how to engage in virtuous play. It's creating a safe environment where those kids aren't going to have adverse child events. Um, he knew intuitively that that's what created virtuous uh, citizens. Mm-hmm. And so this is the reason that I wanted to, to have a special shrink and pundit about big T trauma. I wanted to normalize the fact that it exists. And, and for us as integral developmentalists, we need to understand, um, in my opinion, that, um, that development is profoundly impacted by uh, the, the upper right and the lower right. Um, and they impact the upper left and the lower left. And knowing that means that when, I, when we're dealing with ourselves and we're dealing with other people, when someone is coming from a crazy place or we're coming from a crazy place, there's a very good chance um, that there is unresolved trauma, either a small T or big T trauma, mm-hmm. that needs attention. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we can use those extreme reactions – as cues to say, ah, oh, there's something here for me, or, 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 or even if our if um, uh, our children, you know, if my kids having repetitive um, 
um, temper tantrums for some reason. Oh, maybe his brain needs to be um, uh, 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 harmonized in a particular way. Um, or if my partner just goes into a rage and all she can do is just say all kind of horrible things to me and kind of loses control. You know, you know, later on when we talk, you know, why don't we get into therapy and, you know, and, and talk about these situations where, I, you know, we kind of lose each other because we're so upset. Um, you know, a lot of work that I do... Um, with couples, uh, and, and one thing I like about a third of my practice is couples. What I like about couples is, is that you know they bring the material in because they enact the patterns, and it's it's so clear that people go th- through a threshold of arousal where they really can't relate anymore, but they're pretending to relate, kind of like four year olds <laughs> having to. T- and so when that happens, I always stop everything. That sounds and familiar. Have- Oh God! I have I stop everything. I have everybody calm down and you know take deep breaths and you know remember that we're all human beings and all that stuff and and then they're below the threshold and then they can relate again. <laughs> so okay, so so I teach couples how to do that, but also, um, how did it happen that you have this capacity under threat to go above this threshold? Where is this extra juice coming from? And more often than not, it's coming from one of the from some version of these adverse child events, some version of small T traumas or big T trauma, um, and most people, uh, you know, people don't understand this. In my opinion, there's a lot of big T traumas, you know, that affect us, and we're profoundly affected, but we don't know it's from a trauma. Yeah, um, you know, like I, I've worked with with people that are sexually phobic, um, you know, men and women, where in certain situations. Um, sexual situations, their partner wants to have sex or their partner wants them to initiate sex and they just associate and just space out. And I'll say, well, did you ever have any adverse experiences around sex? Well, no, no. Well, as a matter of fact, um, there was that time that the guy next door molested me. Oh, really? You know, uh, and so how did, you know, so we tell the story and so on. So how did you deal with that molestation? Well, I just kind of pressed it out of my mind. You know, I just didn't think about it. You know, I got ashamed later on when I realized what had happened, but you know, it gets kind of pressed it out of my mind. And so you can see, so I'll, we'll talk about it. So, you know, pressing that memory out of your mind was also pressing sexuality out of your mind. And so it causing you to dissociate from your sexual self. And now you're dissociating from your sexual self with your partner, and that's causing problems. And so we need to do some trauma work with that event so that they can reclaim that that dissociated sexuality or that dissociated desire to be vulnerable or that dissociated desire to be powerful um, and be assertive or that dissociated um, desire to stand up for yourself or that dissociated desire to stand up for your needs or your dreams in, in the face of somebody else's who's bullying you to, to go with their agenda. Um, again and again and again, it comes up. And it's important developmentally, and it's important for us all to be aware that it happens to us and the people we love and to most people. Yeah. What's interesting to me to look at it developmentally, I mean, even if we look at child abuse, child abuse in earlier stages of development was just what happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and, And we can look at, I mean, I can't tell you the number of women that have, that I've talked to uh, three or four at least of, of my good friends who have had some sexual trauma, the neighbor next door grabbed them and molested them. Or mm-hmm. the, um, uh, in one case, a friend of mine, her, a guy broke into her bedroom and she actually Aww. fought him off with a lamp. And, but, and, 
it's actually more traumatic to them as they get older. Yes. Uh, because they're actually developing. They're mm -hmm. developing a capacity to sort of feel the pain of it in a way. Uh, and, and I think at Green particularly, um, a lot of women just get outraged at the mm -hmm. basic oppression that sort of and sexism that is built into the culture that yes. um, they weren't really that upset about before. Mm -hmm. You know, I look you, at, at back even at me being gay. I mean, when I was a kid and I knew I was gay, I knew that I could never talk about it and I knew that I could never have love. Uh, I, and I, well, I did. I mean, I just factored that in and I got on with my life. I didn't suffer over it that much. It's just the way things were. And, and then as I grow, that becomes, you know, I had my, my gay uncle was happy to live in don't ask, don't tell, you know? And so that was okay with me for a while. And then that became, fuck you. I want to be seen too. But not until I grew into that stage where it started just being intolerable. And that's interesting to see how we, the more we uh, develop, the more we have the capacity to actually feel and to then go back and work with some of these things that were behind the curtain before. That, that's exactly right. And, and it, it mirrors a, a phenomenon that I've seen. If, so let's just deal with molestation as, as an example. But you could do the same thing with if a child was physically abused. Um, so if you don't deal with it, for every developmental fulcrum they go through, that abuse gets re-experienced on some level and it compromises the development. It, it causes a problem. And so, you know, it goes through physical development and it goes through development from amber to, to orange to green and, and so on, if, if it's not processed. If, say the kid, like, you know, my kids were, were molested when, when they were little, but my daughter by a preschool teacher and my son by, by a friend. It, 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 you know, they talked about it, so it didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough to scar both of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my kids talked about it, just like some other kids do. Well, every time that they went through a developmental fulcrum, they had to reprocess Interesting. their experience. Yeah. They, had their, they talked about it. They had a new understanding. They had the feelings again in a different fashion. Um, they had to integrate it into their emerging sense of self. Um, that continued with both of them into their 20s. Um, uh, every developmental fulcrum had to reprocess it um, in a particular way. Now, each time that they reprocessed it for them, um, they got healthier. Um, and that's what I advise my clients. You know, the, here's the thing about, about trauma. Nothing ever makes a big T trauma worthwhile. You know, you know, there's sure it's a learning experience, all that other stuff. But you know what? Nothing makes it worthwhile. But what makes it acceptable is that you learn to be stronger and wiser on the other side. Yeah. If I can experience myself stronger and wiser as a result of the trauma I went through, I can accept it. Yeah. I can fit it into my autobiographical narr narrative. I look back at the traumas of my life, and since I insisted upon becoming stronger and wiser as a result of them, they fit into a robust and healthy and joyful autobiographical narrative. And that's true for my clients. Um, and that's your – strangely, you know, uh, 
since we're responsible for everything we experience or do, when the car crash happens, when the assault happens, when the rape happens and so on, now I am 100% responsible for dealing with that. And my job now, this job that God has given me for, because for whatever reason I got this, 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 this trauma, my job now is to do what it takes to feel stronger and wiser on the other side and to get help from other people, loving people, enlightened witnesses, and so on, to help me feel stronger and wiser on the other side. And then it's acceptable. Yeah. Then it fits into a life worth living. Well, that's, I think you just described the, the integral perspective on this, and that is to turn towards it. Yes. Uh, always to turn towards the thing that we had been turning away from and, and bring it into awareness. Yeah. Wow. And it leaves us joy, you know, it's funny, you know, you talk about feeling awful about being gay when you were a kid. You know, I was kind of bisexual when I was a kid, you know, so my heterosexual feelings were all great, but my, the gay ones were just <laughs> completely, God, oh, yeah. and, and I remember feeling such shame and fear and so on. And, and I, I remember back when I was a hippie, I was really happy about all, you know, all the hippie guys were wearing all these colorful things and jewelry and everything. It was like, there's a part of me going, you know, fuck you society. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, and so I had to go through my anger stage and then eventually into a stage of, okay, now it's a matter of radical acceptance and in, in creating a life that's worth living and so on. Um, and, you know, I think there's another thing with green. You were talking about women. I think all of us, when we get to green, we can see the dominator hierarchies that have dominated the world and that's still – and we just get so pissed off. I know. I know. And before that, we just accepted them, you know. Yeah. That was yeah. just the, the, the water we were swimming in. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty of development. And I, uh, I've just continued to be awed by how things – as long as we stay in the game and, and keep our eyes open and relate to other people and share and see and be seen, that we just can't help but grow. And yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, we're the only creature we've ever known where any individual can affect their own personal evolution yeah. through our lifetime. Yeah. We can accelerate our own ontological evolution. Yeah. And and yes, that if there's anything that underlies the 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 integral uh, life practice, it's this this there's all this shared understanding of it's a really good idea to support our evolution on all the developmental lines. Right. That, you know, that that, that that serves not just us, but serves everybody. And part of it is, you know, we got to deal with what we got. And if what we got is trauma, let's deal with it. Right. Exactly. Yes. And we all do it one way or the other. Two-thirds of us have big T, but the rest <laughs> of us have something. We know. all have T's. We all have <laughs> T one T or another. I know. Well, that's a good place, I think, to bring it to an end. I and think so. uh, what a great uh, transmission, Keith. I really feel like I, I, I'm a bigger person having, having listened to that. So thank you. Uh, I love our conversations. And, and I'm glad we're talking about this. This, is, this. this needs to be an important component in all of our understandings. All right. Well, thanks again, Keith. And uh, you can find Keith's work on drkeithwitt.com. 
And I'm at The Daily Evolver, and this is Jeff Salzman. And thank you all for listening. It's so great to be with you in this way. Take care. Much love to everybody. <laughs>